So as I started studying the, the sanctuary, and I, I started it with a sermon that I gave um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there are a lot of topics that are built into the sanctuary. The sanctuary teaches us so many different things. And I gave an overview of everything. <laughs> I gave an overview of everything uh, that, that the sanctuary can go over uh, in my last sermon. And as we examine the sanctuary, we see that one thing sticks out, that there are angels all over the sanctuary. And, you know, there's there's just a predominance of angels all over the sanctuary. And we don't always think of it that way because... Um, we don't, we don't maybe, you know, we don't, how, how were they visualized or how are they in the sanctuary? So we'll go over that. Uh, but first, if you'll uh, bow your heads and pray, this prayer's for me. So, dear Heavenly Father, I ask that you use me as your mouthpiece, that my words are your words, that this sermon can be a blessing to those here in the congregation that they may apply this to their lives in some small way. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. I really liked that uh, that special music we had too. The lower lights keep burning. You know, the guy, whoever was in charge of those lower lights may not have realized the magnitude or the importance of their job. And yet an entire ship was lost because they were gone. It shows you how important our job is. If it is our job to keep those lower lights burning, it is important that we know the Word of God and that we study it so that we can share it. So I want to first start off with uh, going to Exodus 36 and verse 8. And we're going to look at, I'm going to use my, my little 3D animations here. Uh, we're going to look at the the way the angels are woven into the sanctuary. And in this case, they're actually woven into the veils of the sanctuary, the the linen cloth and tapestry that's used. So in uh, Exodus 36 and verse 8, it says, Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made ten curtains woven of fine linen and of purple blue or blue purple and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim they made them so the way that this might be visualized is that underneath the layers of the canvas we had a linen sheet that was over top of the sanctuary and these little gold emblems in this picture are all the little cherubim that are wrapped around the sanctuary right and as i talked about in my last uh sermon this is a very small, minor model, a scale version of the much bigger heavenly sanctuary. So <clears throat> this is how, this is one way you could kind of portray the sanctuary. We weren't there, obviously, but this is how God was I- instructing us to portray the heavenly sanctuary, that there are angels everywhere. So let's go to uh, Exodus 36 and verse 4. 35 so same chapter we're just going to run down to verse 35 and he made a veil of blue purple and scarlet thread and woven fine woven linen it was worked with an artistic design of cherubim and now this is the the veil that goes in between the holy place and the most holy place 
So when we actually move into the sanctuary, we're going to have a veil here that separates the two the two uh, sections of the of the actual inner sanctuary, and we have the the cherubim inside this in this place that are represented on the veils. Now we also know. Uh, let's go to Exodus 25, just back a few more chapters. But we know that there was also cherubim on either side of the ark. And on either side of the ark, let's go to Exodus 25, verses 20 through 22. On either side of the ark, we saw uh, the, let's see, 20 through 22. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and the and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of, te- of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So we had the ark... And there are even more cherubim. And there are the covering cherubims that are sitting there over the ark and around the mercy seat. We know that in Solomon's temple that there were two additional cherubim that stood over the entire ark. That that their wings actually shadowed the ark, where the ark actually sit even. So we have just angels everywhere throughout the, the, uh, throughout the, uh, the sanctuary. Now, we read in our, uh, in our scripture reading, Psalms 80, that God dwells between the cherubim, right? It says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. So he actually dwells in between the cherubim. In, 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 so angels are just all around God. Now, if we want to go to Deuteronomy 10... I want to show you, and I hope your fingers are nimble today because I got a lot of verses. <laughs> but uh, Deuteronomy 10, we're going to go through and look at what was in the ark. Deuteronomy 10, verses 1 through 5. So we're going to look at the law of God that was in, inside the ark. That actually God sat above, the mercy sat, seat sat above, that the cherubim covered. And it says, 1 through 5, at that time, the Lord said to me, hew for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke and you shall put them in the ark. Now, if you remember, this is the only thing that God writes with his own finger in the entire Bible. So I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed two stones, two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain, having the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark, which I had made. And there they are, just as the Lord had commanded me. So underneath the actual uh, mercy seat itself, when we would open up the ark, we would see the, the two tablets of stone for the, with the Ten Commandments on it, the, the bowl of manna, and Aaron's rod. 
Now, when we actually look at the uh, temple built by Solomon, and uh, due to time, that's all the slideshows we're going to have. <laughs> but if we actually look at the, um, the uh, temple built by Solomon, we know that the sanctuary was built a lot bigger and a lot more magnificent. And we actually had, instead of the veils that we saw there with the sanctuary all in them, that the walls were actually carved with cherubim. So it had the same uh, representation throughout the sanctuary that there's the cherubim throughout the whole thing. In fact, if we lead to, if we read Second uh, Chronicles 5, we can look real quick at those two special cherubim that I had said. Second Chronicles gives a lot of information about the uh, Solomon's temple. And uh, we can learn more about the differences there, but I just wanted to focus in on those extra cherubim. Uh, so Second uh, Chronicles 5, 7, and 8. It says, Then the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. So now we have even more cherubim because we have more room and we have more ability to represent these angels. They're just all throughout the heavenly sanctuary. Isaiah 6 even mentions a different kind of sanctuary. I want to just jump there real quick. Uh, Isaiah 6 and verse uh, 2 and 3. I'll read that. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I thought that was really interesting because I was preparing this sermon and on Wednesday we were sitting there talking about, you know, we just kind of do a little prayer meeting and then talk about whatever comes up. And uh, we brought up angels. And I'm like, okay, so my sermon might be on topic. And then, without any prodding at all, I get my song list from uh, Delhi, and the hymn of praise is holy, holy, holy. So I'm like, okay, we're on the right track. So we'll, we'll just keep going here. So who are the angels? There's a common theory, and it's perpetuated through modern Christianity, that the angels are our loved ones that have died and gone to heaven and then they return to earth as angels to look out after us and things like that. Um, in fact, you ever remember that old TV show, Highway to Heaven, with Michael Landon? Uh, <laughs> I used to... Ashley's like, what are you people nodding your head about? <laughs> but, but I used to love old rerun television shows. So even though it's a little bit before my time even, I used to love those shows. But man, there was a lot of problems biblically with that message i mean i remember episodes where they re they they uh, uh suggest you know the angel would suggest that they would go gamble because it was for a good thing or they would do all kinds of different things he was a bartender once of course he was trying to serve only only coffee <laughs> but he was still a bartender there's all kinds of stuff in there but maybe maybe shows like that and media in general perpetuate these false representations right so what i want to look at is what does the bible teach where do angels come from and i want to show that angels 
do not come and talk and visit with us as you know representations of the of our departed. So if we look at Job 38, Job is a really good uh, book of the Bible, but it's a very uh, difficult one to read sometimes. But he talks a lot about things that were. So let's look at what Job says in, in Job 38, verse 4 and 7. And we'll find here that Job, that angels existed when before God created this world. So in uh, Job 38, 4 through 7, it says... Where were you, this is God speaking to, uh, yeah, God speaking to Job out of a whirlwind. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So here we see in the last verse, when the morning stars sang together, that's representing angels, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Again, we're talking about angels and other created beings. Shouted for joy when God created it. So angels belonged way before the earth was even created. So they can't be, they can't be are dearly departed that are just here. And we, and we know that from other ways as well. So let's look at the angels and how they were numbered, right? Because we know, we know that for every one bad one, there's two good ones. And so let's look at how many good ones there are and how they're organized. And there's a really good verse. In fact, I was, uh, I was uh, looking through my Bible app and I was just reading the Bible and I came across this verse and I bookmarked it and I'm going to save it for this this sermon. And then because it's a social app, Lisa's chatting on there on the thing and I, she got to it before my sermon. So, But she, she found a, a blessing in that as far as helping her understand something. So let's go to Joseph, Joshua 5. Joshua 5. And... Uh, Joshua 5, and we're going to see that there is an angelic, the angelic host has a general who commands the angels, right? And this general is holy. So what does that make this general? It makes the general Jesus Christ, right? So let's look at uh, Joshua 5, and we're going to read 13 through 15. It says, and it came to pass when Joshua was, was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said to him, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So here he is, the commander of the army of the Lord. So the commander of the angels. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, the commander of the, uh, of the Lord's army, the commander of the angels, would be called the archangel, right? 
Now, some people suggest that the archangel is an angel just like the rest, but we see here, take your sandal off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. There's only one thing that you get to worship, and that's God. No angel, no created being would ever accept worship, except for Lucifer, he tried to, which we know where he ended up. And we're going to see that. I Actually, I have a verse, but it fits in later, where we can actually see an angel denying worship. But for now, I want to read for you. You can stay there. I want to read for you Matthew 26 and verse 53. Because here we're going to see about how the angels are organized with precision. They're organized in legions with military precision. And it says, Or do you think that I cannot pray to my Father? This is Jesus speaking. And He will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. So God will just provide that to Him if He wanted it. Now we see, we can also see uh, Ezekiel 1 is a really good uh, chapter to read because we start seeing some really interesting things. Uh, It actually kind of maybe seems confusing at times even, but it's providing a symbolic representation of angels. If we look at Ezekiel 1 and how they're organized and how things work and how they're directed by the Holy Spirit, but angels are the ones that actually do a lot of the work, right? And so it's really interesting to look at Ezekiel 1. You ought to look at that. So for now, let's look at Psalms 68. And we're going to look at some numbering. Let's figure out if we can determine how many angels there are. Psalm 68 and verse 17. We're going to look at the number of angels. Let's see here. Psalm 68 and verse 17. It says the chariots of God are 20,000. And we know that the chariots of God are angels themselves, right? Even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, the holy place. So we have thousands of thousands. Thousands of thousands is millions. So is that all the angels we have? Well, we can flip back to Revelation 5 and we can see another accounting of the angels. Told you I'm going to have you flipping around a lot today. (laughs) But I always find that my message makes more sense when I let God speak for Himself more than I fill in the words. So we'll go uh, Revelation 5 and verse 11. And it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. So we have thousands and thousands, which is a millions, but we have the number of these were 10,000 times 10,000, which is a hundred millions. So we have hundreds of millions and millions, and they're numbering those both because you have to remember in the Hebrew language, there's no term for millions. So everything was multiples of thousands. So we have this representation. So now we have hundreds of millions and millions. And that's both in the same verse. And let's just flip to uh, Hebrews 12 also real quick. Hebrews 12. And we're going to find here how easy it is to count the number of angels. So we have a representation that there are lots and lots of angels and only half as many demons. So let's look at uh, Hebrews 12 and verse 22. Hebrews 12 and verse 22. It says, 
But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. That's how easy it is to count. They are innumerable. You can't even count them. So when they're in the sanctuary, they look at the angels in the sanctuary and there's 10,000 times 10,000, a hundred millions plus millions. But when you count the angels as a whole, because there was probably angels out doing things, there are innumerable. We can't even count them. So now I want to look at the mission of the angels. What is the angel's job? What are they doing and they're working with. So, a couple of verses I have here, so you don't have to flip around too much. Matthew 4.11, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. And now this is Jesus we're talking about. The devil left him, and the angels came and ministered to him. So the angels were ministers. They ministered to Jesus, and they ministered to us. Hebrews 1.14 says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So the angels come and minister to us, right? And, you know, there was an interesting t discussion we had at a uh, Bible study or a prayer meeting on Wednesday was, you know, sometimes we hear this a lot where you have a guardian angel. And I believe we have guardian angels. They may not be the same one. I don't know. I can't find anywhere in the Bible that it says we have one assigned to us. But we always have as many as we need in every situation. Whether they're ministering to us, whether they're helping us, whether they're making sure that we don't trip over something that we, can't, we shouldn't be tripping over. They're always angels in the right place at the right time and in as many as we need. However many that may be. But I can't find that we just have that one like that's branded like this one's Jason's. As you know, so it's even better because we have lots and we can, they're always where they need to be. Um, so let's go ahead and flip to John 1 and 51. And we're going to see here how uh, the angels actually do the bidding of Jesus Christ. And they take our prayers and return answers. And in John 1, 51, it says, And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And now we can think back to Jacob's, prayer, uh, Jacob's dream, remember, when he was in the wilderness. And he was sleeping and he woke up or he dreamed the ladder, Jacob's ladder, and the angels were going to and fro up into heaven. That's why I don't think we have just one assigned to us, one guardian angel. Because they're constantly, he's like, I say a prayer, the angel goes, got it! And takes off, and there's another angel coming back and be like, "Don't worry, you know." And so they're constantly moving back and forth. And the other one that's coming back, he's like, "Here, I got an answer for you," you know, coming back from God. And, and so we constantly have this back and forth, angels moving around and taking care of everything. The angels actually become the emissaries of Jesus, and it's interesting because I've had people discuss whether Michael is really uh, Jesus. And we saw earlier that the commander of the army, and we know in other places that it says Michael and his angels, and he's the commander, 
And throughout the entire New Testament, how many times does it use the possessive over angels when regarding, when talking about Jesus and His angels? Here's Jesus and it's His angels. So we have this possessive uh, quality that's all throughout the New Testament that's talking about uh, Jesus and His angels. So it, it really steps right in line with Michael being uh, the Jesus, being Jesus and being the archangel because He's the commander. They're His soldiers. And so Jesus is Michael in the flesh. Now, if we can continue on here, what I want to look at is their participation in the great controversy and how that great controversy is working out here. In uh, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 9, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 9, we're going to look at how the angels are not passive, that they're not just mere spectators, that they are soldiers in this, in this battle here. So 1 Corinthians 4, 9, we're going to see how they actually observe they're active participants and they observe the mystery of redemption and how all of that works. So 4.9 it says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So here the apostles are saying that we've been made a spectacle. And the word in Hebrew is theatron, which so it's actually a show, a, a theater you know, and they're a theater to both angels and men. It's actually showing to angels and men. The apostles are showing, being shown as a spectacle to angels and men to say this is the way and this is right, right? So we're actually seeing that mystery of redemption, that each of us need that example, that testimony, that witness, and we should be that to other people. Um, we see that angels are ministering. We see them imparting God's message to prophets. We see them protecting all of us from the evil one. Uh, we'll see them where they actually bring God's word to mind. Um, let's turn to Luke 15 and verse 10. Luke 15 and verse 10. We have a couple of verses in Luke 15, or in Luke, Luke 15 and verse 10. We're actually going to see here where angels rejoice when sinners repent. It says, uh, Luke 15 and verse 10, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. So can you imagine that? Every time you do something wrong or you sin, the angels are like, oh... But every time you repent, whoo, hallelujah, party, let's get it on, come on. You know, and, and so it's an excitement in heaven when we rejoice because we're taking an active part in that offer, that gift, that gift of redemption, right? Let's turn back to Luke 12. Luke 12, verses 8 and 9, so just a couple of pages. And it says here, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man, also will confess before angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before angels of God. So when we repent and when we ask for forgiveness, Jesus confesses our names before angels. We see this active participation and this rejoicing. 
Let's talk a little bit. We've talked about what the good angels are doing. Let's talk about both the loyal angels, but also the disloyal angels. The whole mess that the sanctuary uh, represents that the that made the sanctuary necessary that we're uh, an active part in this great controversy actually started in the heavenly sanctuary in the most holy place and we have lots of verses that we're going to look at here in Ezekiel 28 let's go ahead and turn to Ezekiel 28 and the first thing that's uh, right behind right in front of Daniel Ezekiel 28 Ezekiel 28, we're going to see where this disloyal angel, where his origin is, how he was a created being and how he had a beginning. And naturally, if you have a beginning, you can have an end with where he's he's starting off. So let's start in verse 13. It says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Now this does not sound like the classic representation that we see in the movies of a red guy with horns, a tail and a pitchfork. This sounds like the exact opposite of that. Because it's so perfect and beautiful. Every precious stone was your covering. I mean, this would seem like something holy, but he's not. We're going to read on in verse 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So until sin was found in him. So let's look at verse 12 real quick. We're going to see his nature and appearance was sinless and beautiful. We actually saw that in verse 13 also. But here in verse 12 it says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So he started that out. When I, when I read that about his covering and how beautiful he was, he had started that out with, You were the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He was so perfect and so beautiful to the point that he got full of himself. We don't understand why he would have done that except for that he just, just pride got a hold of him. He exercised his own free will. So if we look here at verse 13, at the end of verse 13, you notice it says, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you the day you were created. So, the workmanship of your timbrels. Timbrels is like a tambourine kind of looking thing and pipes like flutes or horns or whatever. So G Satan was given the gift of music. And that's why music can be so so deceiving. It can be used for wrong. You know, even some Christian music we can we can be led astray with, right? We have to be very careful because the words are one thing, but the music itself can cause a very bad reaction in our brains. So let's look at 14 real quick since we covered all of those and we're going to see his position in heaven. 14 says, You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. The fiery stones represent the angels. So he walked back and forth among the angels. 
So we know that He was created well before the creation of the earth. And He was the anointed cherub. He was the right-hand cherub. He was the most important angel of all of them because anything on God's right hand is has a little more... Uh, a little more, uh, a little more power, maybe a little more responsibility, I guess would be because because all of God's creation has equal value to Him, but He had a little more responsibility, which you know comes with power and things that He had access to, but that responsibility was on Him. So let's look a little more in depth on Lucifer's sin by flipping to Isaiah 14, and we're going to see that in Isaiah 14 that. The Lucifer actually wanted to overthrow God, that he wanted uh, to take over God's seat, specifically uh, Michael's seat here. Uh, it may not mention that, but we're going to see here uh, Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. And notice what you want to look at here is what is the most popular word you're going to hear. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart. Now here, start counting where you see the most popular world word. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So we see there the most popular word he's using is I. He had this severe case of myopia. He was very selfish and prideful when he was doing, when he uh, found iniquity in his heart. Um, now, we know in Ezekiel 28.16, we've already read this, that Lucifer sinned against God. Actually, we didn't read this part, but I, I have it here for you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. It's interesting they use the word trading, right? Um, dealing, selling, trading. Uh, it's, it's an interesting term. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we just read that, that he wanted to be like the Most High. So, so we see here that the, by the abundance of your trading, by your selling, you know, it kind of reminds me of a used car salesman. You can't trust what's coming out of his mouth. And if you have to sell something so bad, like I've got to convince someone to buy this, maybe we are being a little bit deceitful, you know, at some point. You know, there's got to be a line, right? Either the product is something they want and it speaks for themselves or what are we really doing? Uh, and it's interesting that the word used here is actually translated in that way. Let's go ahead and turn to 1 John 3. We have a couple of verses in there I wanted to read. 1 John 3, it's towards the back of the book right behind Peter. 1 John 3 and verse 8. We'll see that Satan begin, uh, sinned from the beginning. And we have, you know, God uses this very term, uh, very interesting way of using terminology um if something happens until it ends he'll say it happens forever because it happens until it's over and if something happened that was inevitable then it happened from the beginning because it was inevitable for it to happen somebody had to test free will it was inevitable that not everyone was always going to have free will and stay in god's graces 
because someone had to test it to show that the other way was bad, that there was such a thing as sin. So here we have verse John 3 and verse 8, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that He might destroy the works of the devil. Now in first uh, chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 4, we're going to see what is sin. Verse 4, it says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So sin is transgression of the law. So we have this clear definition of what sin is. So there is a law that was always was and always will be. It's not done away with, right? We had one set of laws that was only set of laws written by God's finger, and that was always was because how could God, how could the devil be a sinner from the beginning if there was no law? And how could he sin in the end if there was no law? And how can the, the devil be seeking after those that keep his commandments if the law is done away with? So now, Let's look at how Lucifer actually spread that sense of rebellion, right? Because he knew that he couldn't just do it on his own. He had to have help. So he needed to recruit followers. He had to present God in a bad light, just like he did with Adam and Eve. And he had to actually change people's or angels' conception of God's character. So he made him look like a tyrant, made him look like God was trying to get everyone under blind submission, that they were, they had no choice. And so that, that the devil could look like the great emancipator. Come, follow me. My way provides freedom and happiness, true freedom and true happiness, and that God is just trying to keep us down. And that's the same way he deceived Eve in the, in the, in the beginning of the earth. So let's, uh, well, let me just read that again with Ezekiel 28.16, how Lucifer's selling his lies. It says, By abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Have you ever heard that old saying, like, I start telling Dottie something, and I'm like, oh, you know what? I rode on a horse, and it floated over the ravine. And she says, I don't buy that. Now that's the same kind of sense that we're talking here, that Lucifer was trading and selling his lies. And people had to buy it or not buy it. Or angels had to buy it or not buy it. So we see that same sense even in our own language and our own, and our own, uh, cl- uh, little sayings and stuff that we use. Uh, so let's go to John 8. John 8, we're gonna see how Satan is a liar from the beginning again. And how he is the father of lies. If I can find John. There's John. John 8, and we'll go to verse 44. John 8 and verse 44 says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resource, for he is a liar and the father of it. So we see this this. Uh, another representation of, of the devil and how he's a murderer from the beginning. He was a lie, father of all the lies that everything he speaks is from his own resources. He just comes up with it himself. And that's obviously not doing very well for him. Let's go ahead and flip to 
Revelation 12. Let's go to the back of the book here. And we have some interesting verses there. We're going to be there for a little bit. If anybody's given up on following me, you could come there. <laughs> uh, Revelation 12. Revelation 12 and verse... We'll start in verse 4 here. And we'll read just the first part. It says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So it says his tail drew a third of the stars. So the stars represent angels. So he, he took a third of them and he drew, took them with his tail. And, you know, I had an interesting talk on, on Facebook the other day and someone was arguing whether the Bible can be taken at its word. Can it, is it, is it infallible? Is it inerrant? And I said, yes, absolutely. And they're like, well, no, you can't say that because in Revelation, the devil's a great dragon. Are we going to take that literally? And I'm like, absolutely, we're going to take it literally. Except when the Bible uses symbology and the Bible explains what that symbology is, right? We can't just say, you know, I know people who say, well, the Bible's so full of symbolic, everything's symbolic. And so the Bible supports reincarnation, and the Bible says that we're all gods. And then he starts, you start making up your own rules, and you believe in the devil at that point, because the devil said from the beginning, you will be like a god. But here, we actually see this representation. Later on, and we're going to read this, that the devil, that the dragon that it's representing here is the devil, that serpent of old, the devil and Lucifer and Satan. But let's look at this tail. The tail drew a third of the uh, stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. What does the tail mean? And I have a verse here that I found. Isaiah 9.15, I'll read it for you. You don't have to flip there. You can stay in Revelation. And the tail, it shows what the tail represents. It says, the elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. So the tail, what does that represent? Lies. The tails are lies. Right? So when symbology is used, it can be symbolic. God, the Bible absolutely uses symbology, but the Bible reveals what that symbol, symbology is. We can't just make stuff up ourselves. So here we have... His tail drew a third of the stars. He drew a third of the angels with lies by selling his lies, by trading his lies. There's a couple other things, and we're not going to flip to them, and I'm not even going to read them, but if you wanted to look them up, Ezekiel 22.9 uses the same root word that was translated to trading, except for here it translates to slander. And in Leviticus 19.16, again, the same exact root word of trading is used for Hebrew. But again, we translate this word in, in Leviticus 19.16 to talebearer, to, to basically a liar, tell, yeah, telling stories, fictional stories. No, T-A-I-L. Because the dragon sweeped, drew a third of the angels with his tail. Right? And so, yeah, and it's symbolically representing those lies. Right. So now that we're in Revelation 12 and verse 14, let's read on. Let's read 7 through 9. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to read 4 again. It says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. 
And then continuing in verse 7, it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels, who did we say had possession of angels? Jesus. Over and over we see Jesus had his angels. And here we have Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. And here we have the definition of what that dragon represented. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, but was cast to the earth. And his angels were cast out with him. Now here was something, while we're here in Revelation, let's flip back to Revelation 22 and read this. Revelation 22 and verse 9. Oh, here's an example of... Of, of again that continuing thought of Michael and Jesus being the same. Because here we have in Revelation 22 and 9, I couldn't remember why I wrote that down, but here we have an angel explaining something to John. And if we read, let's start in verse 8. He says, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Do not worship Me. So we see angels never accept worship because you risk falling in the same boat as Lucifer at that point. Just as the apostles don't accept worship, the angels don't accept worship, we're all on the same playing field as far as being servants of God. And there's only one we worship, God. So, I think that's it for my mad dash through the Bible. I've got a couple more verses, but I'll read them for you. What I wanted to talk about, though, is why didn't... We know all this happened. We know how bad Lucifer is. We see all this sin and punishment and bad things and this corruption. Why didn't God just snuff him out? Be gone, Satan. Poof. You know, if... if if Lucifer drew a third of the angels and all these lies and created all this problem, why didn't he just kill, take care of them all? Just knock them all out. You know, I think the, the root of that question comes down to when we've, what we've looked at here. We see the root of Satan's deception. He was lying, right? And he was lying about God's government, so to speak, that God was implementing, and he was providing his own sense of government, his own style, saying that I provide true freedom. I provide true uh, happiness. I can be like the Most High. And he's all this self-centered, and everything came from within himself, right? He gave a government without God's restrictions, that you can have all of this stuff. And if God snuffed him out, what would that have said to every other angel that didn't follow him, right? The, the, third, the other two-thirds of the angels, as well as any other sons of God. They would say, well, we don't even know, but we better fall in line. You know, maybe Satan was right. We don't know. God's covering it up, right? In a way, we see that all the time when we see politicians. And we see politicians in the current climate now. Don't pay attention to that. Delete, delete, delete. <laughs> There's nothing important. <laughs> don't, don't mind my mad delete button. There's nothing important to see here. 
right? And we can't, we can't, we can't trust them if, if they can't even let us see what's going on. So what's God doing? He's letting us see what's going on. There you go. Have fun. Let's see how this plays out. Let's see which way's better. So, God didn't want doubts in the mind of His creations. And unfortunately, that whole scenario is playing out right here on earth. And unfortunately, we have to endure that. Now God says that we get some special rewards for those who endure because we had to endure sin and things that may not be fair. Right? But Lucifer in the end will be ended. The purpose of the sanctuary is to exonerate God before the universe. To show God's true path. So God can destroy sin, sinners, and the devil and just be done with all of it. And He won't leave any doubts in the mind of creation. Malachi 4.3 actually is a very good verse because if you remember, you remember the verse that says that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, Right? Alright, listen to this verse. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. So Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches, but the Lucifer, Lucifer has a root, and he is a tree, and he has branches. Those that follow him are his branches. And God will burn them entirely, root and branch. Ezekiel 28, 18 and 19, Satan will be reduced to ashes. It's so amazing to me here because we see this over and over, Final, this finality. God is just going to wipe them out, destroy them, right? And yet there are so many people, I actually had this conversation with my own father, that Satan is powerful enough that God will never finish never destroy him that he will just always kind of exist he'll just be imprisoned or something I'm like no 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 a created being can't be so powerful that he can't be defeated right absolutely yeah it would be hidden away somewhere in the in the universe so here's Ezekiel 28 18 and 19 you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities by the iniquity of your trading now remember Here we have this trading again. But we have you defiled your sanctuaries. Remember in my first sermon how I said that the sanctuary actually represents the temple of the body, right? Our own internal temple. And I've got, you know, uh, Glenda said, well, we need some sanctuary sermons. Well, I've got like 30 of them planned, so we're going to have lots of sanctuary sermons. (laughs) But one of them is going to be about how the sanctuary represented our body, our body temple, right? So here he says, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth. So I guess the devil could exist as ashes, but that probably won't be much to worry about. In the sight of all who saw you, all who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. So, can we be sure that evil will not rise again? That it will be eradicated from the universe? That the entire universe will get inoculated from this virus of sin? Not a vaccine, but inoculated. (laughs) 
<laughs> God's love and justice will finally be revealed. His law will be shown to be holy, true, and good. And He reveal His true happiness comes only in obedience. True happiness, true freedom can only be revealed in God's law. It's like there's a saying, uh, Dave Ramsey posted this on his website just the other day. He said, you are free within the confines of your budget, right? Because when I keep a budget and I say, this is how much I have to spend, I'm free to do whatever I want within that. But if I go outside of that, I'm not free anymore because now I need debt to pay for my house or I need debt to pay, buy a new car or I, I start having problems. That's not freedom. That, that's what caused bondage. This, the, the coming outside of the budget caused the bondage. And then people will fight that the law is done away with. No. The law shows us that true freedom and true happiness happens within these set of rules. Going outside of that causes the problems, causes the sin, causes the complications, the corruptions. Nahum 1.9, it says, what, what, shall you con- what will you conspire against the Lord? He shall make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. So God assures us that affliction will not rise again, that it's gone forever. The root and the branches will be eradicated once and for all. If you'll bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for this message. We thank You for Your truth. We thank You for the commandments. We thank You for the freedom and the happiness that You provide within Your law, within obedience to Your rules. God, we know that the law is not a burden. The law is true freedom. We thank You for everything that You are going to do on this planet. That Your will may be done here among us. That Your kingdom will come. That the meek will inherit this earth. God, we're so thankful to be a part of that plan. We're so thankful to have the angels to minister to us. We're thankful for that sanctuary that teaches us all of these important lessons. And God, we, we ask, we plead with You to show us the way to share these important messages with the people beyond, the people that are disillusioned with the tricks of the devil. That these people are good people, they're They're being led astray. They don't even know it. We ask that You show us the path to reach each and every one of them. That they may come to know the true freedom and happiness that You provide. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.